Well, hello, Chase Oaks. Good to see everybody here at the campus or whatever campus you're at or online um, or if you're podcasting. Really, really glad that you are on board as we start a new series today that at least I'm excited about on this New Testament book called Titus, written by Paul to a guy named Titus. And the series is called On Target. Uh, because there are certain areas of life that we really do need to be on target. I mean, we don't have to be on target in every area of life. It's okay to be a little off in certain ways that don't matter much. But there are some parts of life that we really do want to get right. And I mean, think about it this way. If you were scuba diving, um, you might be in a situation like maybe your fins, you just feel like are a little bit tight. And that's annoying, but that's not really that big of a deal. But one thing you probably want to get right is make sure you have air in your tank, right? You got to have that. Or let's say you're skydiving and maybe you feel like your helmet just doesn't quite match your jumpsuit very well. It just doesn't coordinate. Well, that's not that big a deal compared to making sure you have a parachute, right? That, that's one thing that you want to get right. Or let's say you're dating uh, somebody or let's say you're going on a date and you don't know the person yet, but you're trying to get to that. You know, it would be good to at least think that, you know, know enough about them that they're a safe person, that they're generally a good person in the general category. Maybe somebody that that you might want to be with. Um, I mean, that's good. But you really got to make sure you get your shoe game right. Right. That your shoes match your outfit. Or maybe that's the other way around. I don't. But you get the idea. Right. Some things you want to get right. And and we need to get right. And that's really what the book of Titus is about. Um, in fact, Paul, in writing to Titus, now Titus was one of the leaders on his team. He's got this missionary team and in uh, Titus uh, has been involved in this church on this on the island of Crete, uh, which is still there in the Mediterranean. And Paul says this to him. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's saying, Titus, I am leaving you there because there's some things that need to be in order that are not in order. There are some things that we didn't get finished that we really do have to get right. And so there's a number of things in the book that just that we got to get these right. And the cool thing about it is, even though this is 2000 years old, this book and the issues on Crete were 2000 years old. As we're going to see in this series, it's amazing to me how relevant every one of them is. In fact, in some ways, more relevant now than 2000 years ago, like the one we're starting with today as we start out the series, which is on solid thinking in a world where there's a lot of bad thinking out there. That was a big issue 2000 years ago. But today with the Internet and all these Internet experts, right, we all are ex- we're all Google experts of everything, right? There's just all these ideas floating around. How do we navigate that in a way where we where we get the important things right? Because our thinking affects everything, right? If our thinking is off, we're going to make bad decisions. It's going to affect our relationships, right? And it's and it's so possible to be confident, but confidently wrong in ways that we don't know and that hurt us. So one illustration of that from years ago in our life, in fact, this was 28 years ago now, um, when our oldest son, Colin, was born, May 5th, 1993. And this story happened about, started about 1230 in the morning on May 5th, 1993. I remember that because that's when Christy was nine months pregnant 
And she started to have really strong contractions. And uh, she was like, man, I, we're, we're going to have this baby. We've got to go to the hospital, which is a big deal because we were up in Plano. Our hospital was down, down uh, Baylor downtown. And, uh, and now you have to understand that by this time, I kind of thought a little naively that I was a little bit of an expert on childbirth um, because I had read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. We had gone to a birth class, you know, so I knew a little bit. I'd read the book a couple times, actually read through this book. I was a little obsessed with what to expect when you're expecting. So when she started going into labor and she had these really strong contractions, I remember a part of the book and she hates me telling probably right now she's here. She's probably hates me telling the story. But um, and you're going to think, man, my pastor's an idiot, but that's OK. Well, let's just get through. So so I remember this chart in the book that talked about false labor in real labor. And it compared the two. And so as she's, you know, experiencing these contractions, I re- remembered, oh, I, I need to go check that out. So I did. I looked at the, and all of her. The way it was going for her was on the false labor side, not the true labor side. Like, for example, um, her contractions were irregular. Uh, they weren't like happening at regular intervals. And that was on the chart. I'm just trying to justify myself here on the false labor side in the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Uh, They also were not progressive, meaning they weren't getting progressively stronger and stronger. um, Like on the true labor side of the chart, they were just really strong right away and they weren't getting closer together. So they weren't growing in intensity. They weren't growing like they were just the same. And so, I, you know, I remember saying, Christy, I, I know, you know, she's like, we need to go to the hospital. I'm like, I don't think so, because I'm looking at the chart. And it says I, I go through all my little wisdom and, uh, she, and, and I think it's false labor. Now, to her credit, this tells you a lot about her, because what she said back, I can actually share with you. Um, and that is. Uh, and, but I remember her saying, well, you come feel what I'm feeling and tell me it's false labor and uh, meaning pain. Right. Well, right at the top of the chart, it had this little disclaimer. It said, do not consider pain. Both false and real labor can be equally painful. So in my superior wisdom, I said, Christy, interesting, you would say that, but uh, but you you can't consider pain. We have to take pain out of the equation. Right. So this goes on for hours. All right. And she's in the in having these really big contractions and saying we need to go to the hospital. I'm saying I don't think so. And then finally, she's like, I'm going to have this baby. You call the doctor right now. And it's one of those voices. It wasn't like a suggestion. Right. So I I called the doctor and I remember this is like 515 in the morning, called him. And uh, and I started to go into my little just in case he was a little fuzzy on the what to expect when you're expecting kind of going into the spiel about how I think this is false labor. But just to be sure, he's like false labor. What are you talking about? She's having a baby. Meet me at the hospital as soon as you can get there. So we get in our little now it's 530. We get our little Ford Escort in Plano going down to downtown Baylor on the tollway. Little Ford Escorts weren't made to go 130 miles an hour, but this one did, you know, and we went through all the tollway thing, you know, and and get down there because she was having the urge to push. Her body was trying to have this baby. She was trying very hard to not let that happen. This was fortunately 530 in the morning, because if it had been any later and there was traffic, we would have the baby in the car on the tollway. Uh, but we get to the hospital less than 30 minutes later. Colin is born and uh, and. It is in, and by the way, I, I wasn't going to share this, but I will. So 
the, uh, my assistant at the time talked to her doctor and said, hey, what would you say to somebody in that situation? Like if it had been traffic and they had to have the baby on the tollway um, in their car, what, what would you suggest they do? And, and he was an old country kind of doctor. He said, well, if that happened to me, had the baby in the car on the tollway, he said, I think the first thing I'd do is sell my car. <laughs> so for whatever that's worth. But anyway, we didn't have. Now, as you can imagine, we, um, you know, I heard a number of I love you, but you're an idiot kind of comments. They were nicer than that. But I and I deserve every one of them um, but, because I was confident, but I was confidently wrong. Now, before you just say, OK, yeah, you're right. You are an idiot. Um, I want us all to be open, not just to the possibility, not just to the probability, but to the almost certainty that. Every one of us in different areas of life right now, there are areas in life, if we're humble enough to admit that this could be true, where we are confidently wrong and we don't know it and it's hurting us and it's hurting our relationships. And if we're humble enough, we can actually get to a better place there. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about how do we spot that? How can we get our thinking right? Because if our thinking is not right, we're going to. It's going to harm our life. It's going to harm our relationships. And as we're going to see today, 2000 years ago, there was a group of people that were confidently wrong and causing a lot of damage. And and there were a lot of ideas swirling around 2000 years ago, but even more so today. I mean, with with all the ideas we have with media and social media and Internet and all, I mean, all this stuff floating around. How could you and I possibly navigate a world like this, a world of ideas a lot of which sound good, but they may not be good. How do we navigate that well and where we don't become confidently wrong in a way that we don't know and ends up hurting us and hurting our life and hurting people and hurting our, you know, right? We don't want that. So that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter one. And uh, as uh, and, and to set up what's happening, there was a group of people in the church who were teaching things. They were confident. They didn't think they were wrong. They were confidently you know, they thought they were right, but they were wrong. And it was causing a lot of hurt, a lot of damage. And so Paul says to Titus, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it head on because it's a big problem. And so we'll start in verse 9. Uh, Titus, Paul says to Titus, a potential elder. Now, next week we're talking about what that's about. Uh, we're, actually, we're, uh, we're talking about how to choose leaders how to become the kind of person that a person of character that Paul's going to describe, the kind of person we all want to become. Uh, we're going to talk about how to choose key people in our life. It's a really important thing. Um, but so it's at the end of that passage. He says a potential elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, solid thinking and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people. Full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, those of you who are new to Christianity, maybe you've just been to church the last couple of weeks or you've just been watching online the last couple of weeks. And we talked about circumcision and the circumcision group last week. You might be thinking, wow, these Christians are really fixated on circumcision. I had no idea. Like, I don't know. And I know it's weird, but that was, again, the 2000 year old way of talking about Jewish people who had become Christians. So when it says circumcision group in the church, these are uh, Christians who've come out of Judaism. Christianity came out of Judaism. Um, but in here on Crete, that's a Gentile, mainly non-Jewish area. So you had Jewish people who live there. You have all these non-Jewish people 
right? So you have the circumcision group, meaning the Jewish Christians, and then the other group. And, and you have to remember that the Jewish Christians would have been, had a special status because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Bible. They had followed God for a long time leading up to Jesus. And so they were really well respected in the early church because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Bible. Like these were, it's like they, they were just like, wow, this will make because for Gentiles, they in, in Roman paganism and all that, they didn't know anything about God or Bible or the Old Testament stories or anything. So they would have been really impressed with these Jewish Christians, which made them all the more dangerous if they're wrong, because they were very respected and influential and they seemed to be really godly people and so on. So he says, hey, these, you know, Paul says, hey, it's the circumcision group that is the problem. And he said they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets, this was a poet, a secular poet from Crete, has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, at least of these people. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth to the pure. All things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Other than that, they're pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, think about that last statement. Imagine if you describe somebody like, well, we, you know, we talked about dating. If, if somebody came back from a date and they said, hey, how were they? Well, they were detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. You're like, wow, that didn't go so well. Right. This is it. But remember, that would have been a shocking statement. And now we're going to talk about why he says it, because these were the people who knew the Bible. These were people who did the Old Testament law and seemed to be really just solid people. Like, wow, they're impressive people. And Paul says, no, they're actually showing themselves to be detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. He says they must be silenced because they're teaching things that are not true. They're confidently wrong and it's dangerous stuff, causing a lot of problems. So they must be silenced. Now, the New Testament was written originally in Greek and in the translation in English, silence that the, literally from the Greek, it says, you must shut their mouth. Like, has anybody ever done that to you? It's like your mouth's doing this, right? And it needs to do this. Or has anybody ever actually shut your mouth? Like, gone like that to you? Just try it to somebody. Yeah, if you're married, try it this week sometime, right? See how that goes. And then we've got marriage counselors available all week. And because, uh, you know, that's no good, right? That's hard to do when somebody shuts your mouth. But Paul is saying, that's what you've got to do. You've got to shut their mouth. You can't let their mouth keep going. You've got to shut their mouth and and notice it's not to kick them out yet. You know, hopefully they'll, because hopefully, you know, he says they'll become realigned with truth, but you've got to shut their mouth. So what was it? They, their mouth was saying that they were teaching. that was so bad. What was their untrue thinking? Well, we don't know fully. Because we, I, you know, I went there 2,000 years ago, neither were you. And, but we, what we do have is clues from the book, from this chapter and then on into chapter 3. Because he talks about Jewish myths. He talks about human uh, commands that aren't in the Bible, but human commands. He talks about genealogies in chapter 3. So likely these Jewish Christians were bringing in the Old Testament Jewish law, but not just that. They also, by that time, 
uh, had all these human commands. They'd added hundreds and hundreds of very specific things that religious Jews were supposed to do that were outside the Bible. All these laws that Jesus said, man, you're wearing people out. Nobody can do all that. Uh, when he was on the planet. But so probably they were bringing that in, like circumcision as a thing, like everybody needs to do that as part of their faith. And that would probably have been in the mix. He, when he says to the pure, all things are pure. The reason he says that, that's kind of code to let us know that what Paul was talking about was certain purity laws, like of what you eat and certain things like that, like you couldn't eat lobster and certain things. You know, there's all these things you could eat and not eat. And, uh, and so likely what they were telling people is, it was a different view of spirituality, a different view of transformation, that it's about external compliance to religious laws. It's, it's about keeping the rules. And there's all these rules you got to keep. And if you're keeping the rules, then you're spiritual, you're godly. If not, then you're not. And that's not Christianity. Essentially, what they were doing was a law version, a rule version of Christianity, not a relationship version of Christianity. Meaning an external compliance version of Christianity, a legalistic view of Christianity, not what Christianity is, which is not external compliance to religious laws and rules and all these to do's. But instead, it's a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus that transforms us from the inside out in relationship with him. That, yes, then begins to change the way we think and change the way we live. But it's internal transformation, not just external conformity to legalistic rules. You know, you feel the difference there? That's that's basic to Christianity. That's like that's like Christianity. What they were doing was Christianity without grace. Well, if you do Christianity without grace, that's not Christianity because the essence of Christianity is grace. That we are accepted, come as you are, as is. Be transformed happens in relationship with Jesus over time from the inside out. And you can't have Christianity without grace. But they were trying. Right. That was as they were bringing it in. And so Paul is saying, man, you've you've got to silence these people. Because of a couple of things that were going on. One, he says, it's causing serious division in the families and in the church. He says they're upsetting whole households. The word upsetting isn't just like, I'm upset right now. It's like ripping apart whole households is what he's saying. It's like whole families. They lived in these big extended families are being pulled apart. By because some people are buying it, some people aren't. It's polarized. It's divided. People can't get along, even in their families. Does that sound familiar right now? You know, I, as a pastor, I've talked to a number of people, you know, who over these last months who've said, man, I need some perspective because we can't even like we can't even have a family reunion anymore. Because there's so much division and so much polarization. Everybody's got such strong ideas about politics or about the way to approach race or uh, with all, you know, or, you know, the pandemic and masks and vaccines and you know, all this stuff. Right. And, and we can't even we can't even be together anymore. Not only was this happening in the when he says households. Right. So you would kind of understand the parallel. Right. It was very divisive and polarizing and. Uh, and, and it wasn't just their households, but it was important because in the New Testament, churches typically, not always, but typically met in households. So some people had big households and had big houses and big properties, and they would host the church to come and have their church meeting. You go to church at somebody's big household in these big courtyards. And so likely he was also talking about the church as it met was being pulled apart, was being divided and polarized. He said, I mean, you can't let that happen. The unity of the church is too important. You've got to stop it. 
Uh, the other thing that was going on is people were obviously being harmed by this bad teaching. Because when Paul says they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. It's easy. to I mean, you think, wow, like, you know, like get in gossip mode. Like, I wonder what they're doing. Like, how are they, you know, by their actions, they're denying him, detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. You know, it must be something really bad. Like, it must be some, they're sexual deviants or, you know, do, going against God in some way or like that. Like, they're party people and they're partying too hard. And that's not what was going on with this group. This group was not the party people. This group was the highly religious people. They were the rule keepers. They were the best at being good. They were like that. That is not that was not their problem. So what was their problem? Well, what you pick up in the book, their problem was they were legalistic jerks. Who in their arrogance looked down their nose at people who weren't so good at keeping the rules and they violated the most basic Christian ethic. And that's love. And if you violate love. You're detestable, disobedient. And unfit for doing anything good. Christianity without grace, Christianity without love is not Christianity. And and I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not. I hope you haven't, but you probably have. But if you ever notice that sometimes religious people and this is I mean, we're all sinful people, right? So as sinful people, we get religious. Sometimes we go off and we become arrogant and judgmental, all this stuff, right? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes the people who know the Bible the most um, are the people, same people, I know they're most religious, are, are also like the biggest jerks in the way they treat other people and they look down their nose at other people. That's what legalism does. And that's what was going on here. And by the way, if you, if you, have, if you see a group of people who are like that, good theology, good teaching will lead only one place, and that is love. I mean, that's what Jesus said. If you boil down everything in the Bible, it's going to come down to love. It's going to come down to love God, love people. So if somebody's spirituality isn't leading to deeper love for God and deeper deeper love for people, what is love? First Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is never rude. Love it, you know, so on, right? If it's not grow, if somebody's not growing that way, there's a problem. They're confidently wrong. And that's what was going on here. And so they were harmful people. They were hurting themselves. They were hurting the church. They were pulling the church apart. And Paul says, you've got to silence these people. You've got to stop them because they're confident, but they're confidently wrong. Now, that's the issue 2000 years ago. But keep in mind, right? It is, I think, way easier today in an information age to be confidently wrong. There's just so many more ideas that we're exposed to. So many more things. So how do we. Avoid that. Like, how do we navigate a world of so many ideas in a way that we're not confidently wrong, but we can actually be humble enough to say, "Ooh, that was helpful. I needed that correction. Or we just avoid. Well, that's why I have this. um, uh, This is a life straw. And uh, and if I'll explain what a life straw is a minute, but essentially it's a filter. And if you and I are going to avoid being confidently wrong in the way that these Christians were 2000 years ago, really, it means putting out all these ideas through the filter of God's wisdom, through the filter of God's word that he's already revealed to us. And, and making sure that, our, that that filter that we don't just go 
political without a biblical filter. We don't just look at any issue in culture without going through the filter, any issue on anything we see on Facebook or social media or news or whatever. Right. That we just learn and we develop a good filter and we put things through the filter. So uh, life life straw is an amazing thing, by the way. Uh, every time you buy a life straw, it, it actually goes to somebody. They, they do another one for somebody in another culture that doesn't have clean water, because literally it, this is a little filter and you can put this in any stream and just drink right from the stream or get a cup of water that's, you know, and just right out of a, a lake or right out of a stream and drink. And it's pure water when you put it through the filter. Now, think about that, because where I, where I would use this is like in a mountain stream. So if you're, let's say you're in Colorado and you're hiking and there's a mountain stream, it's clear, it's beautiful. If you taste it, it tastes great. It looks great. Smells great. But if you just drink that without a filter, you're probably not going to do great because there's all these unseen things, microbes and giardia and all this stuff that will really ruin a camping trip. It'll make it a very, very long night, you know, or day or two days or whatever. If it looks good, smells good, tastes good. And in a world of ideas, there's a stream picture. It is a stream of ideas that look good, smell good, taste good. But if we don't put them through the filter, it's going to lead to a long life. And a lot of broken relationships and a lot of heartache and a lot of problems and a lot of bad decisions. And so it's to say, hey, man, let's just make sure that we have a good filter. So let me give some a couple of positive illustrations of that. Um, one is I just want to. Thank you as a church, because as we've gone through this pandemic, you know, my prayer in the pandemic was, man, let's let's do this in a with guided by biblical principle. And I don't mean like mask or not mask or vaccines. I, I you know, I'm not a vaccine. I, there are it seems like everybody's a vaccine expert or mask expert now. Right. I'm not. I know it. OK, so I'm not trying to be. I'm not even talking about that. You understand? I'm not talking about that. Just say yes. Okay, thank you. Um, So I'm not trying to be that. I'm not that. I know that. But the Bible does give guidance about how to go through a crisis like a pandemic. And what it tells us, you know, what the Bible will tell us if you put it through the filter is make sure we go through it in an other focused way, not a self-focused way. That's the ethic. Our ethic is love. So it's an incredible opportunity to love our community in ways that are unprecedented in a time where people are naturally going to become self-focused. Like First Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, I, Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That it's easy to go through a time like this and say, it's about my personal freedom. And, you know, and even Christians around the, you know, some of them have done, it's about my freedom. That's not a Christian ethic. A Christian, I mean, freedom is great. I'm all for it. But freedom, it comes with a purpose. And the purpose is to give it up right away for the sake of others. That's what Paul says. Yeah, you can do anything you want, but it doesn't mean it's beneficial. You can do anything you want, but it doesn't mean it's constructive. He says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You use your freedom for the good of others. And by and large, and hey, we could all do it better. But by and large, that's what I've seen you do. And I'm proud of our church coming out of the pandemic. It's not been easy. It's not. And we've had some, you know, there's always issues and attitude. Me too. I, you know, it's been, it's hard to get it right. But, but by and large, as I look back, for example, 
How do we go through it in a way that focuses on others? Man, early in the pandemic, you know, when lots of people didn't have PPE, we had through our Chinese ministry had these connections and we were able to give hospitals that didn't have PPE massive amounts of PPE and police forces and stuff like that. We then saw their other needs and said, you know what, man, they need encouragement and they need help and they need food and they need and uh, not just hospital workers, but essential workers all over. And then we realized, hey, the biggest need is child care because schools are closed and uh, and daycares are closed. And yet they've got to go to work. And what are they going to do? And so we that's what enabled us to say, well, let's just see if we can raise the money, work with the YMCA that knows how to do child care in a really great way, has all the licenses. And let's partner with them. And and essentially through that, through you, we were able to say to all of DFW, which is incredible. If you need child care and you're an essential worker, we've got you covered and it's free. It's going to be awesome. And you're going to love it. And we were able to use our facilities uh, to that were otherwise would have just been shuttered uh, to provide that for people. Same way with coming around hospitals. And that's still ongoing, by the way. In fact, October 2nd is a serve day. And if if you don't know what that is, look it up online. It'll be an opportunity for all of us to serve our community. But one of those opportunities is a hug a hospital evening. We're going to encourage hospital workers. I think that one is at Children's Hospital in Plano. But I want you to hear from uh, from somebody at Texas Health, Allen, because as we come alongside, it is so hard to be in healthcare right now, caring for COVID patients and all that and in the ERs and intensive cares. And I mean, they're just heroic what they're doing. And so we're like, man, how can we encourage them? So we've been providing you have been providing food and other kind of notes and letters. And you got many of you have done that. And I just want you to hear a thank you from one of those partners. So let's watch the screen. Hi, my name is Jared Shelton. I'm the president of Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital Allen. On behalf of our entire team here at the hospital, I just want to say a big heartfelt thank you to Chase Oaks. Your generosity and spirit of caring really helped to get us through a very difficult time as we saw an increasing number of patients during this pandemic. Your support through meals and boxed lunches uh, was a huge pick-me-up for all of our staff on some of our darkest days. In addition to those meals, we also received handwritten cards, and those meant more to us than you will ever know. I have one right here and I wanted to read it. It says, there is no exercise better for the heart than reaching down and serving others. Thank you and many prayers. Little notes like that from members of our community, members of your congregation, were incredibly inspiring and helped us to push through and keep going. So again, on behalf of our entire team here at Texas Health Allen, a big thank you to Chase Oaks. We are very, very grateful. Well, way to go, Chase Oaks. And uh, again, it's just opportunity to be other focused in a difficult time. That's, you know, that's what we that's how we roll. Right. And uh, and let me give you one more illustration of just and we'll talk about how to develop a, a good biblical filter. But another illustration that's coming up uh, and we're just hosting this. This is at our conference. We're just hosting it in, at uh, at our facility it's called Revoice, and it's October 7 to 9, and, and, uh, and you can go if you want. 
But what Revoice is, 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 you know, in a world where there's so many ideas out there, um, especially with sexuality and gender and how in the world do we navigate those issues in a biblical perspective? That's what Revoice is about. And uh, and I want to let you know about it. We're we're even though it'll be at our building, we're actually we're one of the hosts, Preston Trail in Frisco, Hope Fellowship, uh, Christ Fellowship in uh, McKinney. Um, First Baptist in McKinney, one community. We're all uh, hosts or, you know, just helping host this group of people from all around the country who are just taking a who just say, hey, let's look at issues of sexuality and gender from a biblical grid and a compassionate grid as well. And a number of the participants are in the LGBT community who are Jesus followers who say, hey, we're uh, we're. Uh, united around a, uh, a conservative. They believe that Jesus, which I believe too, that Jesus affirms a view of sexuality, that sex is within marriage and marriage between a man and a woman. And, and so they, they have a conservative view of sexuality and all that. But at the same time saying, well, how do we do life within that? And how do we do community differently? And how do we think through things in a, in a deeper way? And how do we love this community well? And, uh, and same thing with on the gender side of things. And so it's, it's really helpful, but I also want to share it with you because I'm sure it hasn't been yet, but I'm sure somebody's going to make some kind of controversy about it because that's what everybody does these days. And it would be it's insane to me that this would possibly be controversial of just people saying, hey, we just want to look through a biblical grid and think deeply about it. But that's what it is. Does that make sense? And uh, and again, you, you can look it up uh, at revoice.us if you're interested and and it is just really helpful. Because if you and I are going to if you and I are going to navigate this world of ideas, these this stream of ideas looks great a lot of times. But there's a lot of bad ideas in there. And that's why we need a filter, a biblical filter. And, and how do we develop a stronger biblical filter? Well, being in community with other people that you can test your ideas with, that's important. Uh, being in the Bible regularly, that, that where God can just begin to change our thinking over time is important. Next week, you're going to hear about the new Chase Oaks app, which will, one of the things that will happen on that is just a daily opportunity to be in the Bible. And we'll go through it together. You'll see my journal in there too. And we'll, and we'll just kind of get deeper together and build our filter together. Because if not, in a world that we live in, we're going to be confidently wrong. And if we're humble enough to admit that, then we can be open to each other. We can be open to the word of God. And over time, be more and more aligned with what God teaches. And everybody wins when we do that. And, uh, and so what, the way I want us to close today is in, I think, I know that God wants to help us do this. So we're going to close with a 3,000 year old prayer where David was praying, David in the Old Testament and the Psalms was praying essentially a prayer relate, just directly related to what we're talking about. And I'll read it and then we'll pray it together. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So I'm saying, God, I, I don't even know where I'm confidently wrong, but I'm going to ask you to speak into my heart, to speak into my life. Through other people this week, through your spirit, just right now, through whatever you want to do, God, I just ask that you would put my thinking to the test. And that you would speak. So let's bow our heads together. And let's pray that prayer. I'm going to pray it on our behalf. Search us, O God, 
and know our heart. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. Point out anything in us that offends you. It lead me along, lead us along the path of everlasting life, of the life that you came to bring us. Lord, I thank you that that you do speak. You do convict. And in community, you use each we you use the opportunity of each other to speak into our lives when we kind of start getting stupid. And God, would you just help us to stay humble enough to keep our ears open? And that you would help us to build a solid filter so that we can filter all the stuff out there and avoid the crazy. In Jesus' name, amen.